0: Welcome to Son of a Preacher Man with Jonathan Martin, a new podcast that's all about finding beauty and brokenness, grace and grit, God and the ambiguity of the in-between. In this special edition of Son of a Preacher Man, Jonathan tackles the especially sensitive issues of hell and suicide. We offer this episode with prayers that you feel seen and known by the God of hope, who keeps on coming for us in the deepest of darkness. Peace be with you.
1: Welcome back, everybody. I am in Ocala, Florida right now. We're speaking for my good friends Dennis and Heather Drake at First Love Church. I just want to take a few minutes to share some things that are heavy on my heart. Uh, Very rarely read something verbatim the way that i've written it but i wanted to start this way last week uh well, really just a few days ago was feeling really heavy about some of the things happening in our world and in broader culture what was dominating the headlines was the suicide of anthony bourdain and also kate spade um, perhaps stories that strike some as uniquely sad because these are highly successful people the idea that uh, even at that level that people uh, can be overcome by that sort of darkness and yet for me the broader point is that it serves to underscore how many people who aren't celebrities how many regular folks like ourselves who do enter that darkness all the time and i think when those kind of conversations come up in popular culture what i'm remedi- what i'm immediately reminded of is just how complicated this becomes when, uh, not only uh, is this whole matter of suicide and depression, uh, these are thorny issues for so many reasons, but then you throw into that people's religious convictions and uh, people speculating about uh, folks' eternal destination. And I'm seeing a good bit of that on Twitter. And it inspired me to write this thread. I'm just gonna read it to you and we'll go from there. It's a heavy time for so many. I haven't felt like saying anything hopeful about it, because I've got my own sadness, and I do. And I don't always want to be hopeful. Sometimes I just need to feel what I feel. But if it's helpful, here are some brief thoughts on depression, suicide, and hell. No disclaimers. Hell is a real place. Have you ever been? It's where you're stuck inside your own despair, trapped in your own head, where you can see no way out. I visited a few times and thought I was over, thought that I wanted to be over. I've stood over the very non-metaphorical cliff, ready to make that last phone call. If you've been to the darkness, really been there, then you know how strong the tide can pull you out. Anything to silence the voices, to forget the flickering reel in your head, to let go into the night. You think there is a hell worse than this? What, a cosmic marshmallow roast worse than losing all hope? Hell is real, and you don't have to go down to get there. Hell is whatever geography you happen to be in when you get stuck inside. The vastness of it staggers you. How the dark can cover all things, most of all yourself. The best news about hell is that God is there. Because there is nowhere God is not sure, as David says. Even if I make my bed in hell, you are there with me. But mostly because we go there and God goes where we go to come for us. In the words of the apostles creed, he descended into hell. And if hell is where God is, there must be a way out of it now or later, because God is the escape door always because it weren't possible to go there and back Christ would not have done it to believe there's no way out of any hell It's not believe in God at all. I'm not trying so much these days to keep people out of hell as to tell them that God is in hell with them already, even the ones of their own making, and that God won't stop until every hell is filled with the glory of heaven. See him lying next to you in the dark. See him walk into hell like he owns the place. Anybody can believe in a fairy God in a far off heaven, but to believe in Jesus, is to believe in the one who descended into hell and keeps on coming and keeps on coming and keeps on coming down because we keep going down here and down here is where he must go to get to us before the theological fanboys come to talk about determinism of either the positive or negative variety up or down. I'll see and raise your training and tell you I'm not interested in any inevitabilities, man. I'm interested in possibility, which is what God is. If there is a God anywhere at all, then there's nowhere that resurrection is not possible and no story that is necessarily over. You think that time is too wide or deep enough to keep him from running after you? As long as it takes, the father runs across the years, across the centuries, across the generations. There is no such thing as too far. I know this is startling for people who believe that death and resurrection is something that only happened in the past tense, like it's not still happening now, like what happened to Jesus does it keep happening in his wake, as if history could hold him down. So elephant in the middle of the room when we have a conversation about this is the doctrine of hell. And it is a thorny doctrine, it is a difficult doctrine, um... I think a lot of people that I know are sort of squeamish to talk about it in public uh, because people will very quickly come to places of judgment based on what you believe about this particular teaching for a number of people the idea of heaven and hell or afterlife in general in scripture seems really clear and straightforward I would want to contend that if you've spent any time reading the scripture at all then what's so striking about the bible if we can say it in a monolithic way about the bible's teaching on the afterlife is not its uniformity but its diversity in reality the biblical witness is stunningly diverse in terms of ways that we speak about the afterlife the way that we speak about bliss the way that we speak about death and suffering we're given so many different images so i would contend that far from being easy and clear there's a way in which Uh, the kind of existence that comes after this one seems to intentionally be obscured a bit, seems to be in the shadows, precisely so that when we speak about such matters, that we have to do so with a degree of humility. And that, I guess, is my big disclaimer. I said in the tweets I wasn't going to give disclaimers, but here's a big disclaimer right now. So anything I want to say about these matters, I really want to say, a lot of humility because i would want to be clear there's so many things that we just simply do not know there are many things especially when we think about uh, people's eternal destinies the nature and character of the life and the world to come i am simply not qualified to speak to in in an authoritative way i don't claim to speak in authoritative way i speak as a follower of jesus i speak as a disciple of jesus and yes i do speak as a preacher of the gospel Uh, But I want to do so in a way with humility, in a way that encourages you not to blindly or uncritically accept anything that I would teach about these things, but to encourage you to pray, to wrestle, to deliberate, to discern, to wrestle with the text, to wrestle with Christian tradition. Uh, By the time this podcast is over, I'll refer you to a number of books and resources that I think could be helpful in how you think about these things. But I wanna encourage you to wrestle. I wanna encourage you to take these things into prayer. I want you to, um, to use some words from the New Testament uh, regarding Mary to take these things and ponder them in your heart. Um, I do not want to be heavy handed. I do not want to uh, push any particular agenda too strong, but I do want to make at least one fairly strong claim. And I'm gonna use the words of, Father Richard Rohr here. I was in a conference with Father Rohr a few years ago when he said something I'll never forget. Richard Rohr said, So long as you still believe in hell as eternal conscious torment, you don't believe in a benevolent universe. And if we don't have a benevolent universe, you don't have a benevolent God. And so long as you don't have a benevolent God in a benevolent universe, you know there's just so many things about how we understand god the word gospel i'm paraphrasing paraphrasing now uh, that that are that are going to be deeply broken i do think we need to look long and hard into this belief into this teaching because the truth is what um what we have in the biblical witness about hell is uh, a number of ideas that are a number of images shall we say they're diverse but they kind of get collapsed together. That is especially the fault, I would say, of the King James Version, which kind of irresponsibly takes three very different, very diverse words from Greek and Hebrew and translates them all uniformly as the word hell. In the Old Testament, the word that gets translated by the King James into hell is the word sheol. Sheol has nothing to do with torment. Sheol has nothing to do with punishment. Sheol is simply uh, a way of saying the grave. It is a uh, kind of a euphemism for the grave. So many times David or other psalmists will give some version of a sentiment. If I go down to the grave, if I go down to Sheol, how can I give you praise? Because it is the expectation in the Old Testament that there simply is not a life beyond this one. Some people will try to dispute this, and uh, there are hints uh, the, the, the book of Daniel and the book of Job in particular, depending on how you read them, there are hints potentially of an afterlife. But even if you think those hints are there, I would still contend that on the whole, you would have to concede that in the Old Testament, people simply did not believe in an afterlife. If, if you understand this, if you understand that there wasn't a concept of eternal life, that everything ends with the grave, then it will make way more sense of the kind of theological debate that Jesus himself enters into. By the time you know, we get to Jesus 400 years or so after the, you know, the, the end of the, the Old Testament period, at this point, now there are a lot of different ideas about the afterlife that have not come from Jewish culture that are not native to Jewish culture, but have been adapted and uh applied by jews and this is going to be a surprise for some of you because i think especially when we read about the pharisees in the new testament we think of them as the ultimate theological conservatives because they care about purity codes and they care about levitical law and keeping the law so we kind of think of them as these are like the ultimate conservatives but actually in this debate about resurrection and about the nature of the afterlife it was the Sadducees, not the Pharisees, that were the theological conservatives. Sadducees did not believe that there was a resurrection. They did not believe there was any hope of the afterlife simply because they made the claim over and over again. Hey guys, it's just not in the text. They were actually the fundamentalist of their day who wanted to make the case that if you're going just by the letter of the law, if all you've got is scripture, then you don't have any ideas about the afterlife. The Pharisees were the one actually who were accused, perhaps rightly, of taking ideas from broader culture, or the regions surrounding them and the religions around those regions that had these very detailed ideas about the afterlife. This is where, of course, they're continually trying to trap Jesus. Hey, you know. Uh, if if a man marries a woman, then he dies and she gets passed down to the brother and then he dies and she's passed down to another brother and on and on it goes, who will they be married to in the afterlife? They're entering into all of these kind of um, ornate, elaborate, complex, complicated, you know, complicated conversations about the afterlife that simply were foreign at that time to a Jewish way of thinking. So the Sadducees on this one, We're the the theological conservatives. Most people simply believe that the grave is the end. Now, into this conversation, however, Jesus himself makes what is, in fact, a novel claim. Jesus claims that in him there is eternal life. Jesus does claim that there is an unending, everlasting kind of life. It is important to note Uh, Because I think this is so this is so clear if you're really spending time in the text of the Gospels Is that the emphasis is never really on so much what happens when you die because the idea Is that heaven or hell either one either of these realities start right here right now? Um, Heaven in the jewish mind was not conceived as a far off or distant place But it literally included the the air that you're breathing the sky just right around you the heavens we're all around the kingdom of God that is in heaven is coming to earth. And that's the prayer that we prayed for 2,000 years. Thy kingdom come, thou will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The glory of heaven is supposed to touch the earth. Uh, you've heard me quote it, some of you, many times from the prophet Isaiah. The day is coming when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Conversely, hell works the same way. Hell is a present reality in the same way that those who come into the kingdom of heaven in the words of Jesus, past tense, have already passed from death into life. Hell works precisely the same in the same way that even now the kingdom of heaven is being welcomed and manifest in the earth. Hell is being manifest as well. And to get back to this little word study on the word hell. And the New Testament introduces two different words that get, again, the King James translated uh, generically as hell, but that are in fact different ideas. Whereas you've got Gehenna in the Old Testament, I'm sorry, Sheol in the Old Testament as the place of the dead. And it's kind of a generic term for the grave. You've got two different terms in Greek. One is the term Hades. And Hades is kind of the Greek equivalent to Sheol. Um, there might be sort of a shadowy hint to the idea of an afterlife, but generally speaking, um, Hades was, was a pretty neutral space. It was not necessarily popularly thought of as a place of judgment or punishment. Jesus, however, speaks about a place called Gehenna. And Gehenna, which gets translated into the word hell and Gehenna, which I would say is probably the idea or the image of hell that we most, uh, in kind of in, in broader culture, will associate with. Um, I don't know. It, it, it's 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 sort of it's it's from that idea. It's from Gehenna that uh, Dante is going to spin a bit into a broader idea of of a hell. Uh, a lot of that comes comes back to Gehenna because Gehenna is a place of unending fire. But the thing you have to understand about Gehenna first and foremost is that Gehenna is a very literal, very real place on earth. Gehenna is literally the valley of Hinnom. And it was in this valley, according to Jewish tradition, that the people of God got caught up in a form of idol worship where they worshiped a false god, a pagan deity called Molech. And the religion based on Molech worship was a religion based on child sacrifice. From the very beginning of the Old Testament story, this goes all the way back to Abraham and Isaac. One of the ways that Jewish religion, the worship of Yahweh was differentiated from any other form of worship in the region is that this God, this Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, does not require child sacrifice, but in fact, he vehemently condemns it. So because uh, the Valley of Hinnom was the place where these errant Jews were led astray into this terrible idol worship that caused them to even sacrifice their own children, it becomes a desecrated place. It becomes a most unholy ground. The Valley of Hinnom becomes the place where that literally is the town dump. People would bring their trash there and they would burn their trash. And that the flame of the the trash that's burning there goes on day and night, day and night, constant unceasing fire. When Jesus speaks about Gehenna, he speaks about a very real place that is not a cosmic far off reality but is actually something that that people in his own audience, they could visualize this place. They knew what he was talking about. They knew about this dump. They knew about this this place where the trash goes. This is the image that we get to speak about hell. Now, what I want to contend, and I know that a number of you have heard a lot of different kind of teaching on this subject, is that in no way... um, do I believe that you can make a, a really strong case in the whole of Scripture that what Jesus ever teaches is some version of eternal conscious torment. Um, the, the opposite of eternal life or everlasting life in Christ that again begins in here in the here and now is not um, unending torment or torture. Part of the reason, that a lot of people believe that and this is based on a false idea in my mind as well is because there are a number of christians who go back for um and this goes back a ways who sort of adapt this idea of the immortality of the soul um there is no notion of this in scripture even vaguely uh but there's a teaching that catches on that basically says that when god breathes onto humankind that the difference between humans and animals is that what God breathed into them was a living soul that is immortal that goes on forever. Um, It's not a Jewish idea. It's a Greek idea. It's a pagan idea that gets imported. Like scripture does not natively teach the idea of the immortality of the soul. Maybe souls just on their own are immortal, but I don't think you can make that case in a strong way from scripture. I think the idea that we get through Christ, because I am someone who believes that Christ offers eternal, everlasting, unending life, is that Christ uniquely offers this promise of of, of an eternal way of being with God, an ongoing way, an ongoing existence of bliss in the presence of God. But that that is a promise that is made uniquely to followers of Jesus. And when we really read the the teachings of the early church, right, they certainly talk about judgment. And I think it's important that you understand motivation matters a lot here, that I'm not trying to minimize judgment. Scripture has a lot to say about judgment. Um, It's interesting how rarely we reflect on the context in which these teachings were given. For example, the most prominent text about judgment in the Gospels, I would say, is Jesus teaching in Matthew 25, the separation of the sheep and the goats. And, you know, if I understood that when I was younger as well, you know, this is the difference between people who pray the sinner's prayer and accept Jesus into their heart and people who do not. Go back go back and reread that text and see what it says. You know, it, it, this image of judgment in Matthew 25, the ultimate separation between the sheep and the goats is not on what they believe about God, it's not what they believe about Jesus or some kind of doctrine, but how they treat the least of these. We might even say um, that the judgment is on how they treat the goats, right? How they treat the outcasts and the marginalized. We never talked about this because it doesn't fit our theological construct. Judgment does matter, and I believe in a God who judges, because we are in a world with such deep injustice, with greed and, and oppression and violence of, of any and all kinds, judgment is necessary. It requires God's judgment or God's justice to make things right. I absolutely believe in that. And I'm thinking about resources right now, like for example, uh, Fleming Rutledge's wonderful book on the crucifixion that bring this to bear. You know, the ways in which it is necessary that we believe in judgment. So judgment does matter. I don't believe that the world can be right unless God himself is the one ultimately who sets it to right. That does involve judgment. But how does judgment occur? Is judgment synonymous with throwing people into a skillet for millions and millions of years with no opportunity of parole, uh, I don't believe that that's a biblical idea of judgment. For one, uh, that that's an idea of judgment that is based on retribution and people getting what they deserve. Uh, the biblical idea of justice is not about retribution; it is about restoration. It is about making things right. Uh, so let just just let's just pause for a moment and and think about that for a moment. Justice in Scripture, judgment in Scripture is about making things right. It is about restoration. It's not about retribution. Uh, What could a person do that's so heinous that they deserve to be tormented unendingly for millions upon millions upon millions of years? That's not justice, or if it is justice. It is an idea, I would contend, that is very much our idea of justice, not God's idea of justice. That's an idea that's far more about retribution than it is about restoration. So it's not that I don't want to contend for judgment. It's not that I don't want to contend that uh, there aren't consequences to our actions, because clearly they, there are. In the words of the Apostle Paul to the Romans, the wages of sin is death. But think about even that statement for a moment. To say that the wages of sin is death is a way of saying that the consequences of our action are intrinsic to those actions. In other words, the way that sin often works. And you know, boy, have I tasted this in my own life. If you jump off the top of a tall building, okay, then you hit the ground. Um, there, there's kind of a law of gravity to that. I just talked about this, I think, in the sermon in the last podcast. there, There is something to this thing that we do reap what we sow. And it is important to say that and to acknowledge that. Um, I believe that when Paul will speak about the wrath of God, that that's what the, quote, wrath of God looks like, is that in this fallen world, in this order, when we um, pursue selfishness and when we choose self over others, when we choose what we want over that which is good for the community around us, There are consequences to those actions. It doesn't require God as some kind of cosmic enforcer or being the karma police to make this so. This is just how the world works. We do reap what we sow. There are consequences to our actions. The image we get of God actually over and over again throughout scripture is not of a God who's constantly enforcing this cycle of cause and effect, but a God who actually interrupts this cycle with grace. That's who God is and what God is about, not about people just getting what they deserve. But yes, there is still a place for judgment. There is still a place for consequences for our actions. All of that is very true. At the end of the day, though, I think so long as your understanding of consequence is an unending, fiery place of torment. You know, I think the image of fire is a significant one, to be sure. And we get that image different places. Also in the book of Revelation. There is a lake of fire uh, where the, the false prophets and the beast and those who war against the lamb are thrown into the lake of fire. But note even the language in that text. They are thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. It is the second death. There's not this idea that somehow people are kept alive for hundreds, thousands, millions of years for the sake of being uh, tormented. That That is so against everything that we know to be true about the character of God, that the God revealed in Jesus, who even on the cross, while people are tormenting him, says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing, has some maniacal way to keep people that are already dead in trespasses and sins alive in order to torment them forever. That's not That's not what, what gospel hope looks like. That's not what the God of scripture looks like. Uh, we, we, I think we should... Be further along in what we understand about the character of God uh, to to believe that. One of the questions that's coming up now, as I'm starting to thunder a little bit on that idea about eternal conscious torment, is whether or not I'm someone who believes in what we might call the doctrine of universalism, this idea that all ultimately will be saved in the end. I would want to contend with you, actually, that before I say anything else about that, that there are a lot of different versions of universalism, and I think it is worth being discriminating and nuanced in how we speak about universalism. There is a form of Christian universalism that is present even in the earliest parts of Christian tradition. Uh, A number of folks who literally helped frame the Apostles' Creed were Christian universalists. There have always been those who believed that ultimately that the love of God would be so overwhelming that would win out over all in the end, that there would at least be the possibility um, that the day would come when when uh, the deception, the deceit that people have and how they see God would be removed from their eyes and that all would come to see God's beauty and God's glory. There have always been Christians who have believed this. There have been prominent Christians who believe this. If you think about someone like George MacDonald who was, uh of course c.s Lewis is theological mentor uh, but you know th- that's skipping way too far ahead really because we have people in the early church who believe this and we have people who are acknowledged as saints east and west who believe this uh and I, if i had if this was a historical theology lesson i'd spend more time with that i'll encourage you to study and so on but what you'll find is that christian universalism has always been part of the tradition and there have been a number of folks who believed in some variety of christian universalism who were not condemned as heretics um the the idea of hell really as a a kind of a, a fixed reality where there's unending everlasting torment is something that really catches on kind of in the time of augustine and that remains really prominent within the west in the east it never catches on the same way which is not to say that every one of the eastern church believes in some form of universalism they don't i wish i could remember who gave who this quote is from cuz it's a great quote and i would want to attribute it rightly but there's some eastern orthodox scholar that has this great quote that he that those who are not at least open to the idea of universal reconciliation you know hopeful and open that god might save all in the end is an ox, but that those who would teach universal reconciliation, that this absolutely is going to happen, is an ass. So, you know, there's this idea that, like, we want to hope for this, we want to pray for this kind of outcome, but that it would be presumptuous and irresponsible to teach it. My personal favorite book on this subject uh, is by a Catholic theologian, my favorite theologian, really, of the 20th century, probably, named Von Baltasar. And Von Baltasar wrote this great book dare we hope that all men be saved. He wrote this in response to people who were accusing him of being a universalist. Von Baltasar wanted to set the record straight to say, in fact, he was not a card-carrying universalist, but this is the distinction that he makes. He lines up the text, kind of pro and con. He shows all the texts that would seem to suggest the idea of unending uh, torment in some way. But then he also lines up all the texts that would uh, seem to suggest in any form the idea that ultimately... Um, all might be re- redeemed. And if you haven't looked at those texts uh, carefully, uh, th- they are worth thinking about and wrestling with, you know, because these they're, they're more than just a handful of texts. When you think about, for example, uh, Colossians, and we have uh, Corinthians, Philippians, Ephesians, all do versions of this. But you think about Colossians, the language, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, that he is before all things, that in him all things hold together that so that in him everything might he might have supremacy Uh, this idea that god through jesus is now reconciling to himself all things all things whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross there are a number of these kind of verses but again it's not a monolithic witness there is a tension within the text that is not meant be easily resolved so what von Balthasar wants to say is not concretely that all will be saved in the end but it's simply that he believes that the posture of the church the posture of individual christians should be that we hope for the salvation of all humans and that we pray for the salvation of all humans but we're not given assurance that this is the case you know what stops me from being a card-carrying universalist because i am someone who is punch-struck on the love of God, and who does believe that God can do anything and everything, and God is endlessly surprising, and God is able to save anybody at any place at any time. Um, I'll say more about that in a few moments. I'm endlessly hopeful about this, but I also know that in the entire narrative of scripture, if there's anything that's consistent, it is God's relentless insistence on human choice, uh, that God does give us Uh, choice and that you know this idea that I don't think God drags people into anything including bliss without their consent that matters choice matters and so for me what keeps me from being a outright universalist is the same thing that would keep me from being um, a, a Calvinist who believes in double predestination is whether or not you believe that people are like chess pieces and God before time says you know these ones are going up and these, were, these ones are going to go down, right? Whether you believe that we're pawns in that way or whether or not you believe that all will be saved in the end, uh, to me to say either of those things dogmatically is a form of determinism. And what I believe about God in the gospel is not deterministic, right? I just think there has to be a larger role for the place of human choice. So those things are left open-ended in my mind uh c.s lewis i suppose articulates this notion better than anybody in the great divorce this kind of notion of hell being locked from the inside right that even in the afterlife that uh, you know you've got this provocative image of people who have been so conditioned by their choices Um, There's that great line that there are those in the end that will say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God will say in the end, thy will be done. So if you become the kind of person that's always making this choice to go against God, essentially to go against love, that you could be stuck in this place, that you could be stuck in this kind of reality. And, you know, that, uh, that idea, it does sober me. And yet, I would want to. I would want to contend this, and maybe this gets back to some of the things I read from the beginning. Some of these initial, you know, reflections on hell and judgment, and and final hope. Um. I don't want to set this up. If you look at the book of Revelation in particular, which is interesting because I think Revelation is a book that it has so much judgment in it, and there are. Violent images, they're militant images, um, a lot of what seems to be bloodshed in the book of Revelation. Uh, some of you who've been around me know that I feel like a lot of those images are badly misinterpreted. But there is a lot, a great deal of, of violence in the text. And what you read in the book of Revelation is that, you know, starting back, say, as early in the text as Revelation 8 that we see the way that the nations make war against the lamb, the nations. And as the terminology begins to develop through the book, getting onto the, the war that will happen with the lamb, it is the nations and the kings of the earth that make war with the lamb. So over and over again, like a mantra, there is that language, the nations and the kings of the earth, the nations and the kings of the earth. This becomes a shorthand way of speaking about the bad guys the nations and the kings of the earth are those who are wearing the black hats they're the ones who are taking on the people of god they're the ones who are making war with the lamb and by the time we get to revelation 19 um, when the lamb is victorious over these forces incidentally uh, and ironically there's not a battle scene there the lamb rides out to this fight wearing a robe that has been drenched in his own blood, not the blood of his enemies. There's not even an actual fight scene. You might want to pray and meditate on the meaning of that a bit at some point. God does come and, uh, you know, the lamb brings judgment by his word. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, which is a way of saying that God judges by his word. What you get in Revelation 19 is that the nations and the kings of the earth which are consistently spoken of as a way of speaking about that which is evil. And this this book that, from a literary perspective, is so sophisticated. The nations and the kings of the earth are always the bad guys who are making war against the Lamb, and they are deposed. They are thrown into the lake of fire, where they are then tormented. And yet, after we get to this scene in which the nations and the kings of the earth have been judged, And presumably all of them are burning. The nations in general, all of them, it seems, they're referred to in Revelation, have made war against the Lamb and they've all been subject to this kind of judgment. Yet in Revelation 21, we get this beautiful image of the new Jerusalem, this new city that is coming down. And in Revelation 21, beginning with verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations, listen to this, will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. People will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So there is this idea that all those who enter in the city have been consecrated. They have been sanctified. But what does it mean that in Revelation 19, the nations and the kings of the earth seem to disappear because they're thrown in the lake of fire, which is the second death? Yet in the very next chapter, we get this image that now there is a new city that has come down. The gates are never shut. Why are the gates never shut? Why are the gates left open? Why is the light left on? What does that mean? How is it possible that even after this image of final judgment, that there are nations and kings of the earth who once were in rebellion Against the Lamb, some of you want to spin this already. Say, "Well, oh, these are the good nations; these are the positive kings of the earth." There are no good nations or kings of the earth in those texts. The kings of the earth and the nations, repeatedly, in the Book of Revelation is a, is a way of expressing these are the enemies of God. But now, they're enemies of God who are coming to bring homage to the Lamb. In fact, there's this teaching that the river of life that runs through this city is actually for the healing of nations how is it now there's healing for the nations how is it now the very kings of the earth that once were built are now being brought in and now are humbly coming to worship the lamb how is this even possible is this somehow an image of salvation after death is this a, a a provocative glimpse into future possibilities. I would contend that at least is. Uh, that it seems to be a flicker of that. I'm not building a whole doctrine on it. Uh, once again I said in the very beginning. I think there's plenty about. Uh, the afterlife. That in, in the, the teaching of scripture. Throughout old and new testaments. That is shadowy and unclear. But I do think it at least gestures in that way. That there is this. That there is this love that continues to reach. Uh, you know in the same way that you know we see with Judas all the way up into the end God is speaking this word of friendship is it possible that that might continue after death I certainly believe that it's possible uh, I think it's possible to believe that to hope for that to pray for that without necessarily believing uh, that all concretely will be saved I also think it's possible to believe this without because this kind of stuff really annoys me you know some irresponsible notion that, okay, like, uh, you know, some, somebody's going to hear this and take it as, okay, so, so Hitler kills 6 million Jews, then he wakes up the next day and he's, you know, bright eyed and bushy tailed in the presence of God. I'm not saying anything like that. You know, what's clear in Revelation 21 even is that there is a kind of transformation that has to happen for people to enter into the glory and beauty of the city. But even there you might want to think about the fact that the image of fire throughout scripture and including we get this in passages about judgment especially paul and corinthians that the that there is a kind of fire of judgment that is a purifying fire nothing can enter into the city unless it has been purified Uh, there is a process of purification that is necessary there is a process of purification that is painful that may even turn us inside out but I want to contend again that the fire of God is not destructive in nature, but is transformative, that it transfigures. thinking about a phrase from the Eastern Orthodox uh, theologian Sergius Bulkagov, who very beautifully writes about how the flames of fire on the day of Pentecost how the flames of Pentecost. He's writing about this in context of that image in First Peter, about the earth and you know being judged and the elements burning with fervent heat and he writes in this context that it is the flames of pentecost that transfigure the earth that transfigure the earth that transform the earth this is the reason why the earth itself according to romans 8 is longing and groaning and sighing for the revelation of the sons and the daughters of God, for the manifestation of the sons and daughters of God, because justice is about making things right. It is about restoration. It is about reconciliation. It is not about retribution. That is your idea of judgment. That is not God's. That is how we would judge. That's how we would do if we were him. That's not God's. When we talk about how... God's ways are higher than our ways and God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. It is so weird to me that people will use a text like that to talk about God as some kind of a vindictive judge. So it might not make sense to you that God would take someone who's in a tribe in Africa who's never heard the gospel and throw them into some kind of eternal torment for millions of years because they never prayed the sinner's prayer that might not make sense in your idea of judgment, but his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts what a stupid way of thinking about that verse read the context that verse is about mercy The way that God's ways are higher than our ways and God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts is that God is merciful beyond our reckoning and beyond our fathoming. That is the way that God is so unlike us is in God's mercy from the very beginning in the Exodus story, the glory of God is located not in the bright shininess of the cloud that surrounds Moses, but according to God himself when he introduces himself in Exodus, the basis of God's glory, the foundations of God's glory, is in God's mercy. It is in God's mercy that the glory of God is revealed. It is God's mercy that makes God so unlike us. If you want to talk about the holiness of God and and, and how there is an otherness and a separateness to God from us, that is ultimately what it's about. It's not some form of moralism, but that the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God is so transcendent and so great that it is beyond our capacity to wrap our minds around. The glory of God is so great and his ways are so much higher and his thoughts are so much higher because God's capacity for mercy is endless. God's capacity for mercy transcends our capacity for mercy. And that's why I flip out when I hear this bullshit. That somehow people who commit suicide are then automatically thrown into some kind of an unending torment. It's a fundamental misunderstanding of the character of God. And people are trapped in that kind of darkness. And people are in that kind of isolation. People are living in that kind of pain. Do you really think there's something that's worse than that? You really think that there's some kind of a physical fire? that could be worse than losing all hope, even in Dante's image of the inferno, right? Even in Dante's image of hell, that, that's thats the sign that's over it, right? You know, that, 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 that to enter into those gates is to enter into a place where there is no hope. To enter into hopelessness and to despair is the very definition of hell. And I did it there's somehow, some kind of extra hell beyond that. That there's some kind of additional punishment, right? That there's some kind of, uh, I I I just don't believe it to be true. That's not the character of the God that I know that is fully revealed in Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, according to Colossians, or in the words of Hebrews, the exact impression of who God is, fully revealed in Christ. That's just not who God is. It's not who he is. It's not what God is doing. It's not what God's justice looks like. Is there a some way that people who die without Christ are able to come to some kind of place in reconciliation, you know, in the end? I don't know that for sure because I don't know anything about the afterlife for sure, but here's what I believe with all my heart. And I place all my weight down on this hope. God is good. God is good. And when the disciples are grappling with after all this time that they've walked with jesus and they're still saying to him, when are you going to show us the father what does jesus say to them philip if you've seen me you've seen the father if you've seen him if you've seen that god on the cross with the crown of thorns on his head the wound in his side bleeding out for you and me and even in that place of god forsakenness he cries out father forgive them for they know not what they do that is the definitive once and for all image of who god is for us god's last word over humanity is christ god speaks a better word than our words of judgment that are vindictive and full of retribution and god speaks a word of hope god speaks hope and the more and more i come to trust in the goodness of god and the more and more i come to believe. the beauty of god that's revealed in christ whom i love now more than i've ever loved before whom i believe in now more strongly than i've ever believed before the more I, i believe with all of my heart you know i'm just not i'm just not afraid so much anymore about uh people being fried in a skillet for generation upon generations you know i do want people to come to saving faith in jesus because I believe we have so many things that we need to be saved from, not least of all, ourselves. Jesus comes to save us from sin because sin is self-destruction. Jesus comes to save us from ourselves. If I could even say it in a churchy way, I even believe that Jesus comes to save us from the devil, but Jesus does not come to save us from God. God was never the one who was against us. Rather, in the words of Romans, even while we were far off, even when we did seem to be the enemies of God, Christ's own love for us is revealed in this, that even then Christ died for us. Our problem ultimately is not with God. Our problem is with ourselves. We're the ones who self-destruct. We need saving from ourselves, not from some existential abstract idea of the wrath of God. Man, if you've lived any life, and I'm sad to say that I have in this way, you know there are consequences to your choices. You know what it's like, that there are terrible ends sometimes, but man, the idea that somehow God is just about enforcing that? No, God God interrupts that cycle of cause and effect with grace. I, I took this in kind of a big cosmic meta direction I've given you a lot of, to think about and to pray about and to chew on but I want to take this back uh, in particular to the place where I started and just to speak for just a moment to people who who really feel stuck in that place of darkness people who don't feel like they've got anybody to call or to talk to they can be honest about people that feel trapped inside their own heads, Uh, people who, who cannot see hope, people who can't see light at the end of the tunnel, maybe people who have been in despair long enough that they can't even really imagine wanting that kind of hope right now, can't even imagine wanting some kind of an escape route. That is a truly terrible place to be, my friends. And I know what that place is like. I know what it feels like. I know what it feels like to feel like that the the water's over your head and the tide is pulling you out, and, and that there's a, that there's no hope, that there's no escape. And that's why I want to bring it around to say, you know, hell is a very real place. And if you're stuck inside your own head and if you're trapped in a place where there is no hope there's a very real way that hell is touching the earth hell is an earth a place on earth again you're living in that place right here right now but i want to tell you something jesus the one who in the words of the apostles creed did descend into hell is descending into your hell right here right now And he wants to bring the reign and rule of heaven to the earth in your life. And there's not a Gehenna that's so dark or so fiery or so awful. There's not a torment that's so so deep. There's not a pain that is so great that he can't redeem it. That he can't bring rescue. That he can't bring light. That he can't bring hope. I want to tell you that there is no hell. There is no place on uh, on the earth or under the earth where God is not. Again, in the words of David in the Psalms, even if I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I take on the wings of the morning and I fly to the uttermost parts to sea, even there, you are with me. You can't outrun his, lo- his love. You can't outrun his presence. No matter how deep or how dark you go, there's not a place that's too far because there's not a place that God is not willing to go to get you back and yes on some level intuitively i do believe it is my hope it is my prayer that that is true not only in this world but in the world to come i'm not trying to give anybody any kind of false assurance i just know that god is endlessly surprising and i know there's nothing that god won't do to get his sons and daughters back there's no place he won't go and i can't imagine that there's a Chasm so wide, a valley so low or so deep that the love of God, that the inexhaustible love of God, can't reach into that place. And I think I just want to end now with a word of hope for people who are in such a place right now, that feel past hope, that feel unredeemable and unregenerate, that feel like. You've seen too much, done too much, felt too much. There's just no way out of the place you are now. I wish you could somehow, in the eyes of your spirit, and I don't mean to say that in a spooky way, but somehow you could see Christ himself lying there beside you in that darkness. Christ himself cradling you in that dark, barren, empty place that Even hell itself is not outside the jurisdiction jurisdiction of God. Christ, who is the Lord of all, who is all in all, who is reconciling all things, is there with you now. I just want to speak a word of hope. That even though this feels like the end, it is not the end. It is not the end. In fact, it may just be the beginning. That in fact, when you've completely unraveled, and you get to the end of yourself and you get to what feels like the end of your life and your desire for living. That this is the place where conditions are ripe. It is the perfect storm right now. Conditions are ripe for a move of God. Conditions are ripe for new life. Conditions are ripe for God to make a way where there is no way. This is the place where spirit broods over the chaos, over the nothingness, over the the inky black the way Peterson translates Genesis one I think that the spirit broods and hovers over that bringing life bringing something new bringing something new where there's only been death and for those of you who are in that place right now that feel trapped inside and don't see any answers and don't see any way out I just want to encourage you that Christ is there with you now and I believe that there are people if you'll reach out to them who love you, who believe in you, who, who who will be with you in this place. Not even a matter so much of pulling you out. Sometimes maybe sitting with you in the darkness until the light of heaven somehow can crack into it. I know you've got those kind of people in your life. I know that whether you believe this or not right now, there's people for whom you just deeply matter. And the world would not be the same without you in it. And as much as you might want to give up, even if you can't imagine wanting to live for yourself, you know, your life, it, it matters for people around you. It really does. It really matters. You matter to people. And you most certainly matter to God. So I just want to, if I can say this in a way that doesn't feel trite, I want to encourage you not to give up. I want to encourage you not to lose heart. I want to encourage you not to lay down and die here in the dark because again what often feels like the end to us is is the beginning of new possibility of new hope of new life even a life and even a kind of possibility that right now it, it seems beyond you to even hope for but hope will come again hope will come again desire will come again possibility God is possibility. God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is possibility. God is with you now. Let me pray for you. Lord, I lift up your sons and daughters who right now feel trapped inside dark and lonely places. I can't conceive of a way out of where they are. We can't imagine loving again feeling loved and not only can't imagine living but can't imagine wanting to live thank you Jesus that you are the one who descends into hell and there's no place that we can go that is so dark or so far that you're not willing to reach down into it to get to us and I pray even now that they would feel and see and know that you were reaching for them, even now. Your hands are reaching out for them now, your arms of love. Pray, Spirit, that you would whisper softly the words that these sons and daughters need to hear who feel discarded, who feel guilty, who feel ashamed feel alone in the midst of that darkness here comes the proclamation of their father carried along by the power of the spirit these words you are my beloved son in whom i am well pleased you are my beloved daughter in whom pleased you were fearfully and wonderfully made God takes infinite pleasure in who you are how you are how you're created how you're made you were loved you were seen you are known this is not the end this is not over even if you've made your bed in hell Words to you or not, you've made your bed, now lie in it. His word for you is even if you've made your bed in hell, I am with you, I am with you, and there's no place you can go, and there's nothing you can do to ever escape my love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.
0: I hope you enjoy today's podcast like an LP each episode is divided into side A and side B side A could be a sermon a conversation with a guest but will always introduce some idea side B will always be a creative exploration of that idea through music question answering with listeners or quirky rabbit trails off of side A for people who want the deep cuts not just the singles No matter who you are or where you come from, we hope this podcast will be a resource in helping you come to know the love that calls you by your true name. For more, go to jonathanmartinwords.com and sign up for our email list. Have a good day.